dismiss our children with Mrs. Maisie in the back. So uh, I'm sure it will be a time of fun-filled excitement since we stopped at Target on the way to get some supplies and activities. Some of you are wishing I had stopped at Target and got each and every one of you a Starbucks peppermint mocha or something like that, but unfortunately we did not. But uh, we're glad you're here this morning and we're really excited about uh, this Advent series, which in some ways is uh, taking a spin on it. Usually we look at uh, the advent of our Lord, the first coming of Jesus in appropriate fashion, but in this series we're looking at the great expectation that all of Christ's people still have, that he will come again. When I talk to people about the second coming of Jesus, I typically get questions like this. Maybe you've heard them. When is Jesus coming again? Or maybe you've even heard uh, a question like this. Is Saddam Hussein the beast of Revelation? Or maybe, depending on where you fall politically, you may ask the question, is CNN the false prophet? Or maybe Fox News. Or maybe you, like myself, have recently gotten new credit cards in the mail, and it has that little chip in it. And we're all getting nervous. And we begin to ask the question, is that new chip that's on my credit card, is that the mark of the beast? These are the kind of speculative questions that we all too often ask. Trying to look at some of the imagery of this final book in the Bible and trying to attach some sort of immediate temporal person or event or reality to what's going on in this book of Revelation. We ask questions like, when is Jesus coming? And you know, this blood moon issue that recently came about. And yet we recognize that the scriptures clearly teach that we, we don't know. We spend much time thinking and speculating about that. But the scriptures tell us that no one knows. And all too often, we are asking speculative questions about the return of Jesus. And what typically happens is when we get muddled in all this speculation about world events and figures and history and this and that and the other thing, again, not to strip the text from the world in which we live, but what ends up happening is we begin to muddy the waters of what the Bible is actually trying to tell us about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And sadly enough, and, and most tragically, I think, that what ends up happening is our hope in his second coming is superficial and misconstrued at best. When we talk about what we expect of God in Christ at his second coming, we're, we're off a little bit. We're in a different world than the biblical world, than the biblical text. And so in no way, shape, or form, as we continue in this series, are we engaging in some sort of speculation. We want to look at the text and see what 
these visions are really communicating to John, the apostle, in an attempt to see what truth was being communicated to the original audience and see how those timeless truths really have something substantive to say for us who live in 2015. It is my hope over the next couple weeks that we can have clear answers, ones that we can bet the farm on. What can we expect when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ? What is our hope? As the church, why do we sing, right? Why all this celebration? Please, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, the last book of the Bible. If you have Bibles, please open them. Let's go old school for once. Grab a pen up in here. Grab a highlighter. And let's get in the text, shall we? I'm going to read for you verse 6 through 21. The words will be on the screen. I just want to make note, we don't necessarily say this enough. If anyone needs a Bible, we will give you one. Okay? This is about the truth of God's Word in the lives of our people and His people. So please, let's follow along with me. Revelation 19, 6 through 21 says this, then I heard, this is John speaking in the midst of this vision, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This indeed is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. You guys know me that I pretty much stay in the queues. Like I don't really go where, anywhere. I just kind of hang here. With the exception of Poland recently, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Poland this fall. Long story short, basically uh, an investigative trip uh, that potentially could turn into some additional mission work in the future. Bottom line is this. It was a learning experience for me. To be overseas. And what I will never forget was kind of the shock, kind of back on my heels uh, feeling I had when we began to talk about world events, right? Uh, talking about what went on in Libya from the perspective of the American that watches CNN or Fox News versus the perspective of the guy from Ireland who's used to getting uh, connected to BBC with their news versus the Polish uh, uh, national who has a completely different perspective based on the news that they turn into. It was interesting to see how they, based on a different perspective, based on the news that they saw, based on their values and experiences, looked at one world event and had a completely different view of reality. It set me into a kind of confusion in the moment. Like, well, what really happened? What's really going on in the world? And you come to the realization that we're all subject to propaganda based on what news we watch, based on what blogs we read, about what is really going on in the world. And we might, in that moment, become delusional, confused, maybe even skeptical. We don't trust anyone. We have no real sense of reality except for our own. Interesting experience. you got to understand the perspective of the people that were reading this original vision. They were living under the tyranny of a powerful, evil empire known as the Roman Empire. As they clung to 
the gospel of Jesus, as they preached the gospel, as they were dispersed throughout the region, they encountered much trial, much sorrow. They gave up everything for the gospel. They faced intense persecution at the hands of these new convictions. All because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was Lord, and He was making all things new in the world by His death and resurrection. And yet all they knew in their present experience was opposition, resistance, some other power that was flexing its muscles in keeping them from doing what they believed the world needed. And their perspective may have grown delusional. Maybe they were exhausted. Maybe they were confused. Maybe they thought we should just give up in the face of this mess. Maybe this isn't true. What is reality for the people of God? And here we have it. A broadcast from heaven about reality. It may seem like this is reality. It may feel like this person is in charge of the world. But let's be clear. As we hear this sound in heaven, this loud song being sung by a great multitude that sounds literally like the roar of mighty waters, a tsunami of noise, we hear this, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Why? Because He reigns. A dose of reality for the people of God. The Lord, our God, the Almighty, He reigns, not Caesar. He's in charge, not Rome. The kingdom of God is at hand. We can trust in it. We can celebrate after seeing the defeat of Babylon in the re uh, recent chapters, really a symbol of all that is set itself against the purposes and the people of God, specifically in this time, the nation and the, or the, the empire of Rome. They've been defeated by God. You see, in the midst of this moment, we don't necessarily feel that. They didn't either. They felt like they were, in many ways, probably running on a treadmill spiritually. We're working really hard, but we're getting nowhere. There's so much opposition and resistance but the Lord gives them insight. The Lord reigns. A dose of reality. That's why they praise God. That's why lots of people are worshiping God loudly. That's why our expectation about the second coming should be resounding worship. We will worship God. If you're wondering, well, what will it be like? We will celebrate the victory and the rule and reign of Almighty God. Our God. And it will be because He reigns, no one else. And it will also be because another reason. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For why? The marriage of the Lamb has come. 
It's a wedding day. The defeat of Babylon means that the wedding day has come. There's no longer that waiting and anticipation, that preparation. The wedding day has arrived. Some of you may be asking, who's the lamb? Well, John in his gospel tells us, as John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb that was slain. So his wedding day has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Who's his bride? The bride is the metaphor for the church. Jesus, the groom, right? The church, the bride. We see that in Ephesians 5. This metaphor of the bride of Christ. We read about it here and also the final chapter, chapter 22. This is the day in which, at the defeat of Babylon, the people of God in heaven are praising him because it's the wedding day. The bride is ready. And if we've all thought about our own weddings or maybe seen weddings, what is that final moment where the bride has made herself ready. What is that final moment before the wedding where she's ready to walk down the aisle and meet her groom? What is it? That final moment of preparation. It's her dress. I'll never forget the, 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 the crazy, like, you can't see the dress. Before the wedding. Like, it was crazy. Like, what'd you get? No! It's in a closet in a bag. Wham! Locked up. She had the dress. She couldn't wear it before, except to maybe do some uh, sizing of sorts. And nobody could see it. You had to wait. And it couldn't really be worn in all of its glory and beauty until she was ready to put it on. Until the wedding day. And the symbol of, of her beauty was that dress and that procession wearing that dress to the groom. Any of you remember that day, husbands? It's a day unlike any other. When you see the beauty and the glory of the prepared bride dressed in her Gown coming to you. That's what we see taking place here. The wedding day has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. She's ready to put on her dress. And I love the tension that we see here as this wedding day comes. We see the tension of the bride needs to put her dress on. Through her faithfulness, We're talking of the church, her obedience, her love and affection for the groom. She needs to put this on. She makes herself ready. But at the same time, we see verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself. This is a gift. And we see verse the end of verse 8, that this fine linen, this dress, is the righteous deeds of the saints. That this dress is not a physical dress, per se. It's a spiritual dress. It's, it's, a, it's a standing before God. 
It's righteousness. Their righteous deeds are the dress that the church wears before its groom. So what's made her ready is the defeat of Babylon and the making of herself ready. In the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, her ongoing faithfulness to her God. Her refusal to bow to idolatry, which is permeating this culture. And her faithfulness and obedience and allegiance to the one true God is her righteous deed. And she has put this on. But understand this, as we all know, no bride, true bride nonetheless, buys this dress for her. It's been purchased by the Father, right? That the the Father, through Christ, has purchased the righteousness that she needs before God through Jesus. It was granted to her. It was given to her. It's a both and. It's like Leviticus 20. Clothe yourselves, uh, I'm sorry, consecrate yourselves, is the word, to the priests. But I will sanctify you. It's a both and. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's our responsibility to be faithful, to obey. We need to put the dress on. But understand this, the dress is a gift from God. It's Him who works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. It is nothing less than the righteousness of Jesus applied to you that motivates your own righteousness in relationship to your groom. The bride is ready. And they celebrate that. There's a reality check for you. The Lord reigns. The bride is ready. And that's a big reality check for these people. And I believe it's a reality check for all of us. It gets at a a deep hope in the heart of every Christian. We wonder often as we look in the mirror spiritually... As we engage the word, we recognize how, fall, how far we fall short of the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God. We know the weight of our sin. We know that we often walk around with the spiritual ugliness. We're not ready for God. We're anything but ready. There's, it's almost like we've rolled out of bed spiritually and we're expected to stand before Jesus There's a spiritual stench about us. We reek spiritually. Our clothes are ripped. They're filthy rags before God. And we begin to wonder as we continue to go back to square one spiritually, try hard, fail miserably, fall into a hole. We begin to wonder, are we really saved? Is there really any hope for us as we wrestle with anxiety and lust and pornography? All the sins that we face every single day as we continue to spend our money with zero stewardship or any control, as we continue to be angry in our hearts, never seeming to see change, we begin to wonder, will we ever be ready for Jesus? Is he really saving us? Do we really know God? Or is this a sham? 
Someone needs to give us a reality check about where our eternity is headed. The bride's ready. Some of you may be so tired and so living in an unbelieving state about your own salvation, about your own righteousness before God. This is what is happening. This is what will happen for you who know God. Guess what? You'll be ready. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You'll be ready. And you will be beautiful in the presence of your groom because it is his righteousness that you put on. It is your faithfulness and your obedience in the face of opposition which will be forever vindicated by him at your wedding day. You look at the state of the church and you wonder the same thing, don't you? Another pastor fallen in sin, more embezzlement, more hypocrisy, and you begin to wonder, the church is ruined. The church is ready. We may not see it in the moment. We may think that all of our attempts to engage God in the Word early in the morning when we're tired and we don't feel like it, why are we memorizing the Scripture? Why are we obeying this command that practically doesn't make sense? Why are we receiving so much difficulty and opposition? Why do we see the prosperity of the wicked all around us, Psalm 73? Why are we doing this? Why are we wasting our time at missional community every week? Why are we doing this with these people? Why do we continue to walk in faithfulness, holding to the testimony of Jesus? Because this is reality. That one day we will be ready for our groom. So when Jesus returns, expect a wedding at which the bride is ready. That's the truth. You say, well, that's overstating it. We see in a few minutes, or in a few verses, that that's exactly what the angel tells him, verse 9. Write this, blessed are those who are invited, really summoned. Blessed are those who are summoned. Come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a legal summons. It means to call one. It's not optional. Blessed are those who are invited, summoned to the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of you got really excited about the food. I know you did. Coming off Thanksgiving, we're looking at Christmas. Listen, food, eating together is a wonderful expectation that every wedding has within a reception where all of those invited, are participating in the joy of this union that has taken place with Christ and his bride. Right? These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We see even there John lured into idolatry in the moment. It's crazy to think of it. 
But it's so easy. It's so easy. And we see what these righteous deeds of the saints really are. It's those who worship God, those who do not give in to the lies and the lures of the world's gods. Calvin says our, the human heart is an idol factory. We come up with idols constantly. But we're told here to worship God. Not angels, they're just servants. They bear witness to Jesus in heaven. We bear witness to Jesus on earth. It's that simple. We're all serving the witness of Jesus. We don't worship angels. We worship God. So the, the righteous deeds of the saints are that we worship God. So this is a call to repentance for our worship of anything else other than God. Let's, in this moment, turn from anything else that has our affection or allegiance and just worship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Worship the God who has saved us. And last, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Friends, it's simple as this. These people had such pressure to let go. See, they were sent by Jesus. They were told to make disciples of all nations. The book of Acts, they were told to bear witness to Jesus in John, they were told that the Spirit of God would bear witness to Jesus, and you too will bear witness to Jesus, that foundationally what it means to be the church here on earth is to be those who testify, who, who give an account of the goodness, the glory, the saving work of Jesus Christ in a world that does not know it nor believe it, no matter how much opposition we face. That's our calling as the people of God. And so those who do not shy away in fear or make excuses or get themselves too busy to be faithful to the holding to the testimony of Jesus are those who are living into these righteous deeds who will be ready for the groom. And yet, this world of fear this age of busyness and distraction, this world of confusion about spiritual gifts, evangelism, witnessing is not my thing, has led us astray. It's deceived us. And we easily let go of our calling, our, the testimony of Jesus. But even more so, this lives out in our daily living, in our decisions. Right, We hold to the testimony of Jesus in the way in which we orient and posture our everyday decision-making in our lives. That the return of Christ and looking at this vision is a, is a, is a wake-up call, a reality check that says, listen, it's Monday through Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three, uh, uh, 365, 24-7, the whole bit. It's all about bearing witness to the goodness of Jesus. Everything about our lives. Every decision, every relationship. It's those who see Jesus, all that he has done, all that he is, and they say, I'm going to obey him with everything I have and hold, not by a thread, 
Not by a mental ascent, by a nod on a sheet of paper, but I will hold dear into the very fabric of my life the testimony of Jesus. It's not just church attendance. It's not just giving a couple bucks in the bucket when it comes by. It's not watching CNN and voting a particular way. Bearing witness to Jesus is the fabric of who you are and the fabric of how you live. But it does include your mouth declaring the glory, the goodness, the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is a call to our faithfulness. Reassurance, this is reality. But a call to worship God and to hold on. It's like my daughter when we go on the boat and we pull her on the on, on the, uh, the tube, right? She, like me, and like all other sane people, realize that water is sin- sinfully gross. Just the water's disgusting. But, you know, we have to do it because someone will make fun of us for not tubing. So we get on the tube, and we say something to ourselves like this, there's no way I'm falling off this tube. <laughs> and so I used to do this. Now I don't tube. I drive the boat. Praise the Lord. Um, But Evelyn gets on there, and she's like, you are never getting me off this thing. No matter how many times I do this and twirl back around and get all that, you know, full throttle with the boat, that girl is like upside down, and she's holding on with everything that she has to the point when she finally gets off and I give up, she's like shaking. You know, like her arms are like locked and stuck. The intensity at which she holds on, no matter how intense the pressure is to let go in the world. Know how many lies we hear in this world about this is true. There are many ways to heaven. Coexist on a car. That the pathway to true peace is just being nice to everybody. And letting people be who they are. We need to hold on with all that we have for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy when Jesus Christ returns expect a wedding in which the bride is ready is that what you're waiting for You ready, ready for the union that you will enjoy and know fully and forever with Jesus, with one another, as the people of God throughout eternity? Is that shaping your expectation even now, in this season? We see a wedding. Verse 11 through 21 goes in a different direction with the same uh, figures. We see a warrior riding into battle. John sees heaven opened up and a white horse and someone sitting on it. There is a warrior riding into battle. 
So we don't just expect a wedding, which the bride is ready. We don't just expect vindication for the people of God in this wedding. There's something more that we expect. There's more vindication that will take place, and it comes through a war that happens between this rider, the warrior, and we see later on the beast and the false prophet. This warrior, we know who he is. It says the one sitting out in is called Faithful and True. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, verse 12. Some commentators are trying to say, oh, it's this or it's that. And it's like, well, doesn't the text say that no one knows it but himself? It's kind of missing the point. We don't know. There's a mystery there. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. Again, John wrote this. We know his gospel, who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Previously the lamb, now he is the warrior that rides into battle, who is faithful and true. He has a name that no one knows but himself, and he is the word of God. His, verse 16, he has a name written king of kings, lord of lords. He's the supreme ruler over all, Jesus. Reality check again. Jesus is faithful, and he is true. And we're going to see in this passage a a, a, a tension between truth and falsehood. About proclamation of the truth, bearing witness to Jesus, and deception, telling lies. That really the battle between what is good and what is evil is ultimately a battle of what is true and what is false. So countercultural for us who live in a world that thinks truth is relative, that it's that absolute objective truth is unknowable and unreliable. Jesus is true. He's faithful. In this moment, he's keeping his promises. Not only do we see who he is, but we see what he looks like, what he's wearing. His eyes are like a flame of fire symbolizing his role as the divine judge. On his head are many diadems. Diadems meaning crowns, usually with jewels on them. This symbolizes his absolute sovereign authority, Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some thought that this was potentially his own blood from his own sacrifice. But as we see, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 63, which is mentioned really at the end here where verse 15 tells us that this sharp sword comes out of his mouth which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. What imagery? Listen to this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So this robe dipped in blood, as we understand from Isaiah 63 and also 
right here, verse 15, or verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, is that this blood comes from the execution of God's righteous judgment on all those who have set themselves against himself and his people. Not only do we see what Jesus is doing when he rides, I'm sorry, who he is when he rides into battle and what he looks like, but who he is and what he looks like is really setting the stage for what he is about to accomplish in this vision on behalf of the Father and on behalf of the people of God. He is executing righteous judgment on all that is evil and has set themselves against his people. The, the prayers, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge us? We see that this is the, the day of vengeance for the Lord, right? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He's treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He's literally standing and stomping on the grapes. See, throughout the Bible, wine, the grape, the cup, is always bringing us to this idea of the wrath of God being poured out on sin, on evil. And we understand that at his first coming, Jesus received and absorbed and took upon himself that cup, that wrath. He stood in our place for our sin. He was the substitute. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The righteous one received the righteous indignation of the Father. He received the wrath. But now we see at his second coming, he comes very differently with a different role. Not to receive the wrath of God, but to pour it out justly on all that is evil. And we see that's what's taking place, 17 through 21, this ultimate victory that God has secured for his people, who in the moment are living in such persecution and opposition. We in the moment watch the news and we begin to wonder as these nations and people groups flex their muscles, acting unjustly in the world. These shootings all over the place, this... uh, ISIS that's going crazy. And we we look out there at everybody else and say, those are the evil people. And we fail to recognize that we're just part of the problem here in America. We're all, anyone that does not love, worship God, who does not, uh, who follows the system and and the gods of this world, that's the beast. In this moment, it was Rome for the people, the beast and the false prophet. Part of this trinity that Revelation shows you, this unholy trinity, that all of it together symbolizes and shows that all of that has set itself against God throughout all of human history is now coming to its final and ultimate defeat. How does that happen? God unleashes his wrath on them. And it's in this moment that we get very uncomfortable. Dude, it's Christmas. This idea of a Jesus that returns one day to execute all of God's righteous wrath on fallen, sinful, 
idolatrous humanity, the system of the world that has set itself against anything that is in opposition, anything that is false, anything that has set itself to deceive the nations, to tell lies, to, to lure people into that system of thinking, those values, is finally and ultimately going to be defeated. That's what we can expect at the second coming of Jesus. We can expect a wedding in which we, the bride, are ready. Amen. But we can also expect a war in which Christ is decisively victorious over all of his enemies. And I'm not doing this passage justice. Disclaimer. But that's what we see taking place here. And although we get so uncomfortable because we don't like a Jesus that judges, we don't like a Jesus that unleashes wrath, that has a, uh, the, the word, the truth of who he is coming out of his mouth to, to slay that which is false, we get uncomfortable. We feel like it's maybe some uh, new extremism. We don't like extremism. We like moderation. Can't everybody just kind of get along? But we see that justice is at the heart of the gospel. Jerry, you went to Vera House last night. The ball, right? Unjust abuse of women by cowards. Jerry, I can't imagine the things you see every day. When your daughter is raped, do you want Jesus to execute his justice? Do you want that wrong to be made right someday? Maybe that's a poignant example, but on purpose. There is inside each and every one of us a crave for all that is wrong to be made right. It's just uncomfortable, the process. Oh, he's going to have to do that? Absolutely. We want evil, sin, Satan, death to be destroyed. And so when we read this, and when the first century readers read this, they were like, yes, that is awesome. Jesus is going to come riding on a horse and he's going to slay the beast? Yes, he will vindicate us. We are not running in vain. Our testimony is not a royal waste of time. So in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, even when obedience is really inconvenient and difficult, we hold to the testimony of Jesus. Because one day we'll be ready. And one day all of God's enemies will be finally, fully destroyed and removed from our existence. And it comes through the execution of justice, just wrath. Jesus is going to be the agent of divine wrath. The beast, the false prophet that deceived, caused people to worship idols. And all the rest, by the way, will be slain by Jesus. You say, well, what do we do with that, that uncomfortable reality? 
Well, I think 2 Corinthians 5.11 tells us, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? Anybody know the end of that verse? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're back to the testimony of Jesus. You see, this day has not fully come yet. There's still time. So if you're here today, and you've come face to face with the true Jesus, the one who is the warrior riding on his horse who will come to slay the wicked and all the evil forces that have set itself against the people of God, and you want to know the gift of righteousness, turn to him today. Worship God. Rely upon him. Don't wait another day because we don't know when the end will come. When will Jesus come? We don't know. But today is the day for your salvation. Turn to him. If you're hearing the invitation, come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Say yes. Come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Worship God. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. In the midst of your weariness, be rest assured. Jesus will defeat all that is evil in this world and in your life. That's what we can expect when Jesus returns. Just this week, right? 14 people killed. Is it 17 injured? San Bernardino? Saeed Farouk is the name. It's another name. More people, more devastation. More heartache, more fear for a world. So, all the politicians, of course, did their deed. They tweeted something about, I'm sure, sincerely, my prayers and my thoughts are with you to the families and the victims of the San Bernardino shooting. So the next day, the New York Daily News, the front page, you may have seen this image. Right, you see those four tweets and clearly more propaganda and agendas. Um, pretty powerful words. God isn't fixing this. The idea is stop praying, solve the problem by gun control. Right? That's basically what the article is getting at. A powerful statement. Looking at the state of our world, we see so much violence, so much hatred and discord. We begin to wonder, is, is there any hope? We begin to wonder about the value of prayer, right? How long, O oh Lord? Reality check for the daily news and all of us here. This vision tells us God has fixed it. 
hear that? Truth. These are the true words of God. Reality check. God has fixed it. And as we live between the first coming and the second coming, we recognize that although in the midst of the temporary moment, it may not feel like God is doing anything, here's the truth. God is fixing it. Denny Burke says this, God is not fixing this, is fundamentally at odds with the Advent season. God is fixing this. The new world order has already begun through the coming of Christ. And we are awaiting its consummation when He returns. In the meantime, we live between two worlds. Between the world that is and what it can and will be. And so we weep and we grieve and we labor and we strive. We worship God. We hold to the testimony of Jesus in patient hope. God is fixing this. When Christ returns, actually, we can expect a wedding where the bride will be ready and a war where Christ will be victorious. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. We place our faith and our hope in you, Father, Son, Spirit. We worship you. Praise the Lord, for you reign. And the bride will indeed be ready. You are doing it, Lord. You've complete, started a work. You will complete it. So today we are reassured that even in the midst of an evil world, persecution, struggle, inconvenience, all this worldly opposition to worship the gods of this world and to let go of the testimony of Jesus, God, keep us faithful and keep us living in expectant hope that one day you will return and fix it all.